Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I'm Jens Nelson. And I'm Lucas Stock. This is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life as we strive for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. So, Lucas, how's it going, man? It's been a, it's been a while. Yeah, it does. It feels like it's been a like a really long time. It hasn't been that long. It, it feels like a it's long been like time. a couple days, yeah. I think. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's a Monday and you know, it's it's been a week already, so it's one of those days, but I'm excited this to be recording. episode drops in four hours. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, so you can tell we're a little bit behind. We've had some some busy weeks. Yeah. But, you know, committed to the craft, the grind, as it were. I don't know. If we can... Yeah. I mean, what's... Anything yeah. new? I mean, <laughs> I know very little. School is always kind of busy. Work's busy. Yeah. I mean, things are kind of the same. Just kind of like chugging along. Um not much, yeah, nothing like super exciting going on in my classes to like, that like jumps out at me, you know, nothing really that interesting has been going on outside of school either. It's just kind of been like a pretty normal, you know, week of just busyness and trying to stay on top of things. Um, yeah. But yeah. What about you? Oh man. Well, so... <laughs> We, we re- I don't even remember how it all transpired, but basically like last Wednesday we made this like, we're going to go look at an apartment today at like 5.15, 15 minutes after I'm done with work. So we, we go to view this apartment and it's a two bed, two bath. It has a garage. So like all these things we've never had. We've always had a one bedroom, one bath, um, sometimes just like ridiculous parking. One time we had just street parking, which was a nightmare. Um, <laughs> and so we go we look at it we're like man this is awesome the guy tells us like there's one guy ahead of you he's probably already put in his application so like if he doesn't get it then we move on to you if you apply in time or if you apply in time and so literally like at 5 30 last wednesday we go home we fill out these applications and then we drive 30 minutes from stoughton to madison to go to the office like the the leasing office is in madison um and so we drive all the way there and they're closed like the door is locked and I'm like, shoot, like we came all the way here. I want to get this turned in because I, I can't do this during the work day. Um, so like we wait for like half an hour and, and Hannah like realized at this point that the tr- one of the trucks that was left in the parking lot was the same truck of the guy who showed us the apartment in Stoughton. And so Some we're like, detective work. he gave us his business card, but it was only for his desk phone and his work email. So like I called his desk phone to leave a voicemail and I emailed him in the hopes that he would see one of them. Right. And then like 10 minutes later, he comes out to the door and is like, hey, you got really lucky. <laughs> so we we put in our application and the next morning I get a call at work that's wanting to verify my employment. And then Hannah's like, hey, my mom just got a call because Hannah works for her mom right now. And um, we realized oh, that like they're checking up on our application. And so by the end of Thursday, we we had the the apartment and so tonight actually just a couple hours ago we went and signed the lease so at the end of october beginning of november we're going to be moving to a new place which is pretty crazy how quickly it all transpired because we were not trying to like this place just kind of came became available and i was like wow this is this seems like too good to pass up so that's crazy. I, I, it doesn't seem like the kind of thing that is usually like a smooth, exciting, fast process. 
I'm not excited about packing. I mean, we, nah, we like yeah. we had to go up to our attic to rearrange a little bit, and oh man, first of all, it's super hot and sweaty because like it's just like stagnant air up there, and it was like 80 degrees or whatever when we did it. <laughs> and I'm like, this is just the attic that we're packing. We still have the whole apartment. <laughs> I feel like we just moved to this place, right? But yeah, I mean, it's, it, it kind of was. You kind of did just move there. Like, I mean, 11 months ago. In the grand scheme yeah. of things, a year isn't a long really. time to live in one place, you know. But that's super cool, and I mean, yeah. you know. It's an upgrade. All that, all that podcast money is helping you expand. <laughs> the, the none of the podcast money. I wish. <laughs> um, yeah, leave a rating, you know, so we can get podcast money, so we can buy more books. That's the, that's the goal. That's the dream. <laughs> yeah, that's the dream. <laughs> well, speaking speaking of books, um, we read a lot, and the Lord's Supper is a topic that I'm sure we've both read quite a bit about. So, I mean, yeah. Without any further ado, that's a good segue. Let's just that wasn't jump. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Um, so yeah, we we've been doing a very small mini series on the sacraments. Um, if you haven't listened yet, we do have a, very early on. We had an episode very broadly that touched on the sacraments. We talked about what they are, what they're not, how many there are, um, and now um, more specifically, we're looking at baptism and the Lord's Supper individually. So if you go back to last week, we have an episode on baptism, um, which you might want to listen to before this one. Um, I don't, I don't really know. Yeah, it makes maybe. sense logically, but yeah. but yeah, so we're going to spend this episode um, hopefully a little bit more briefly than the baptism <laughs> one, but who knows? We'll, uh, we'll take the time to, to really dive into the Lord's Supper. So I don't, I don't know how you would like to start, but do you want to kind of take it away? Sure. Yeah. So when we say Lord's Supper, this is probably obvious, but we're, you know, we're talking about communion, the Eucharist. Those are kind of the three big names or, or most common names for it, um, which is the, you know, ceremony, ritual, practice, rite, R-I-T-E, whatever you want to call it, um, that Christians have always engaged in, that the Lord himself instituted at the Last Supper when he gave thanks over the bread and the wine, said, this is my body, this is my blood, do this in remembrance of me. Um, And so since the beginning, we see Paul talking about it in... Corinthians, we see, um, you know, some of the earliest church documents that we have give instructions on the Eucharist or talk about how it's to be done or, or, you know, early apologists like Justin Martyr who are like writing Tertullian um, to sort of defend Christianity are like explaining what they do. You know, they're explaining how the, the Lord's Supper works. So this is not something that's I mean, it, it's a non-negotiable. Like, it's just part of Christian worship. Like, it's like prayer. It's not like some Christians... Well, I mean, it, some Christians don't pray. But I mean, like, it's not like a thing where some Christians believe it, some Christians don't, you know? It, this isn't like a secondary doctrine in terms of, like, whether or not you do it, which is great because it's also meant to be this sacrament of unity. We see that. Um, I'm sure we'll get in, we'll get into that, I think, in a little bit. But... It also means since everybody does it, since everybody also does things a little differently, there have been some heated, shall we say, uh, discussion and debate throughout church history on what exactly we should be doing with the Lord's Supper, how we should be talking about it, how we should be thinking about it, what's happening, all those sorts of questions. Um, 
and there are a variety of answers to those questions depending on who you who you talk to um obviously we can give our opinions and that's about it but um we wanted to give sort of an overview in terms of kind of like i mean basically the same idea of what we did last week with baptism what is it what does the bible have to say about it what is sort of the you know the warrant for it what, what are we taught by scripture or, or, or in scripture about it and then sort of right. what you know what else can do like why it's important yeah why it's important well, why 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 talk about it why take the time to hash out what you believe about baptism and the lord's supper is is ultimately why we want to spend these episodes on, on these topics on the sacraments but so right. and like yeah. you alluded to i mean you, you sort of you sort of touched on the fact that this can be a contentious topic there's been debate there's been arguments um, maybe you've seen the uh that little um, brandon smith put that that little video of people like throwing chairs and tables at each other in a street and said like comment what theological position you hold that like makes people do this and there's been you know every answer under the sun maybe this is one of those for you um and i think sometimes we can get lost in this conversation you know we we know that the sacraments are important we know that they have value maybe we don't know where to place the emphasis or why they're of value so that's why i really like liked last week's conversation i think i'm really going to enjoy this week's conversation um i'm actually not sure how much difference we'll have i'm curious to get into it because we actually i mean a little peek behind the curtain sometimes we talk about stuff before we record sometimes we kind of just jump in and today was a day where we didn't talk about what we're going to talk about right. so like i'm very curious to kind of yeah. see where this where this conversation goes but yep. um i think i think by the end i hope it's clear that this isn't something that is um you know, to be taken lightly. It's something that we ought to do often and frequently. It shouldn't just be, you know, once a quarter or even once a month. And maybe we'll get into that in a little bit, but, um, I guess, do you, do you have more you want to add there? Uh, no, I think we can just kind of get, get into it. Um, so yeah, just kind of, just kind of get, get into it. So the, the Lord's supper is a sacrament, as we have said, it's a means of grace meaning it is a physical medium whereby God communicates grace to those who worthily receive it. This is nothing new, really. If you go back to that early episode, we, we talked a lot about that. Um, you might have heard the phrase. Uh, we might have used it at some point. I'm sure we have. You know, an, an outward and physical sign of an inward and spiritual grace, um, a means of grace, something that is the way that grace gets to you. Um, so because the Lord's Supper is one of those, it's a gift that, that God, um, gives to us. Um, Jesus gives his body and blood to the church through this act of worship, this sacrament. Um, in it, we receive, we, we, we receive grace of Jesus's work of salvation by partaking in our faith. Um, and that means that the Lord's Supper ought to be it ought to be remembered that the Lord's Supper plays a vital role in our sanctification um, by participating in the life of the church in this sacramental way. Um, and so with that kind of framing it, I wanted to just, there's, there's a few verses in 1 Corinthians that I think are kind of like some of the most key uh, verses and some of the best places to start 
when you're kind of doing a theology of the Lord's Supper. So for one, um, Paul lays out basically what the Lord's Supper is. Um, so I, I'm reading from first here. I'm reading from First Corinthians 11, and I'm reading uh, verses 23 to 28. So this is Paul speaking or writing. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the, the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So I think there's a few really interesting things going on here, um, where, first of all, you have, what is it? It's bread and wine. <laughs> um, you have where it comes from. The night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and he and he took a cup, and he gave thanks, and he commanded do this in remembrance of me um, and then you also have what is the bread and what is the wine this is my body this is the new covenant in my blood um, which is really important and a focal point in a lot of debates um, especially back in like reformation times <laughs> um, and then we get this also other we get this other also very interesting sentence that is not a quote from Jesus. This is Paul's words. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, so as often as we do the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's this, this action that's taking place of, pro, of proclamation, of, of proclaiming the gospel, you know, in sort of a very focused way, I guess. Um, proclaiming the Lord. in. In the in the Anglican liturgy, when um, during the the Eucharistic prayer, there's a part where um, every the whole congregation, you know, so the 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 priest says, "Therefore we proclaim." You know, he's he's praying over the elements, then he says, "Therefore we proclaim the mystery of the faith," and then the whole congregation together says, "Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again." And it's sort of this, you know, almost like a climax of the prayer where we're all coming together and we're proclaiming the, the as it says, the mystery of the faith. We're proclaiming Christ's death and his resurrection and his future, you know, return. Um, and finally, he warns against drinking the cup and eating the bread in an unworthy manner. Um, and he goes on to say that... <laughs> That's why some people in the Corinthian church were sick and had died, which I always, we'll get into this in a little bit, but you know, for people who take a more like memorialistic kind of view, I think that's a very interesting passage. Um, and I don't think it's like a silver bullet or like a gotcha, but it, it is interesting to me that if, if this was just a pure, you know, just crackers and grape juice that didn't have any outside significance except what it made you think about it seems interesting that people who would did that unworthily would get sick and die i don't know maybe i'm reading too much into it but i've always thought that was kind of an interesting 
No, yeah, yeah. that's that's <laughs> interesting to say the least. <laughs> um, yeah, and the other thing that I think is really important that Paul teaches us in First Corinthians is, is in chapter ten, verses sixteen and seventeen. He says that is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ, since there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So, first of all, you have this idea that we are sharing in the body and blood of Christ, which I think, again, pushes back against a sort of memorialist interpretation. Um, but, more importantly, the, you know, more importantly, but also this does also push back against memorialism, um, the, the partaking of the Lord's Supper makes the body of Christ into the body of Christ. It makes us one. So that, that's another element of what's happening here. It's, it's we are made into the united body of Christ by the Lord's Supper. Not where we're made into one body, so we take the Lord's Supper, but the actual sacramental, you know, worshipful participation of the community creates the community forms the community into a united body um, which i think is just a really beautiful and important uh, important thing um, and i think it's why the lord's supper is and ought to be the climax of christian worship where we are you know we, we we can get into this in a second but we, we're communing with the lord as one mystical body where we in in doing so we're 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 with him we're reminded of his passion he communicates his body and blood to us which he shed for us um and we are sanctified and progress in the christian life toward the ultimate you know glorification and deification that we will have you know in the words of first peter when we are made fully into partakers of the divine nature um so i don't know the, the Lord's Supper is something that gets me really jazzed, and I, I think it, I think it I, you know, like I said, it is and it ought to be the climax of Christian worship. It is, it, you know, it, it is so important, and I think that some traditions have undervalued it, and some traditions have undervalued it in a different way that doesn't look like undervaluing it, but actually undermines what's happening um and i think that Mm. that we need to be really careful to strike a biblical and also traditional balance on what is happening in the lord's supper and what our attitude towards it should be because it's it's like uh what's the word it's it's big you know we're we're people it's huge it's huge people are dying when they take it wrongly we're being made into one united body you know, this, you know, Christ's body is being communicated to us through bread and wine. Like it's, it's, it's really important. Um, and I feel like I've taken enough of, of enough time to just kind of ramble. So, um, what do you have to, to, to reflect on as well? Yeah. So kind of like I did with baptism, how I took it back to the old Testament, we're going to do the same real quick with, with the Lord's supper. Um, because I think we find pictures, we find types, we find anticipations. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that the Lord's Supper is sort of the climax of Christian worship. Um, as we'll see, meals were the climax of 
the people of God's worship all throughout their history. I mean, so God's redemption, what it meant to be his people have always been pictured in a meal. And even before redemption was needed, I mean, maybe that's speaking, you know, incorrectly, but, you know, in the garden, our first parents were able to eat freely of, of any tree, you know, minus one, you know, in the presence of God, living with him, dwelling with him, communing with him. Uh, in fact, the first words that we, or I guess the first words that our, you know, humanity hears from God, you know, it reveals his generosity and especially with food. You know, he says, every tree I give to you, you know, except the garden or except the tree in the midst of the garden, um, you know, knowledge of good and evil. Um, but when they ate of that forbidden tree, uh, life was never the same, you know, uh, they immediately felt shame uh, and hid from God. Uh, the, they, they covered their nakedness. The, they had to work the ground, that, uh, the, the food that they once enjoyed freely. They had to toil after thorns and thistles were going to grow. Um, and in a way, we're still hiding from him. Our sin causes us to, to run from him, to flee from him. Uh, we seek to eradicate him from every crevice of our souls. I mean, think about like people turn to food for comfort. We look for satisfaction, even identity in food. You know, think about all the different diets that people can do, all the different, you know, the vegetarian, vegan, keto diet. Like there, there's there's identity wound up in food. And it, this is like intrinsic to human nature. It's not just Christians who eat a special meal. Um, think about all the meals that we just celebrate as people, you know, whether, you, I mean, it is a Christian holiday, but, you know, what do you do for Easter? What do you do for Christmas? Or the, you know, what do you do for any holiday? Thanksgiving, um, you know, Labor Day. What Everyone has these traditions, these things that they'll eat, that they'll grill, that they'll bake. Um, and, you know, all throughout scripture, like I said, meals shape the lives of God's people. Think about the Passover or really any other feast that, that Israel was meant to like keep and observe. And um, there's manna from heaven. There's drinking and eating at the base of the mountain after receiving the law. Uh, the bread of the presence, um, a promised land flowing with milk and honey. You know, this is, these are just a few of the examples from the Old Testament that uh, revolve around food. Um, in, in Isaiah 25, 6 through 8, uh, we read specifically, I guess, of, of God redeeming his fallen world. Um, and it says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Um, you know, speaking, you know, prophetically, probably in a way of, of a meal, um, of a banquet, of a, a redemption that was to come, you know, realized in Christ, fulfilled in glory. Um, and this theme, as we know, of food continues into the New Testament as well. I mean, think about Jesus feeding the 5,000, feeding the 4,000, um, all the various meals that were shared, how many times Jesus and his disciples go up for Passover or for some other feast. And as we know, it all kind of culminates in the Last Supper as they observe the Passover. Um, we, we, we get in the Last Supper, this, this institution of the, the Lord's Supper, as we're saying, um, this is the meal that, you know, we as believers re really get to enjoy repeatedly. Um, what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden, what the elders of Israel experienced on the mountain, 
Um, what the bread of the presence promised in the tabernacle is now enjoyed by his disciples in the in the upper room. So, like, if you can just picture as an as an Israelite knowing you know knowing your Torah, know, knowing um, Moses, the law, um, you know the prophets, you sort of recognize like, I mean, one the significance of the Passover, but then I mean, just just like um, put yourself in that room for a second as you celebrate this thing that maybe had become pretty rote, maybe it did become like pretty ritualistic because it's something that you had always done your whole life. Um, but now Jesus is giving that like fuller meaning that, that fulfillment of what the Passover meal was meant to be. Um, think of like the deliverance, the, the blood that was sprinkled over the doorpost, the, um, the, the, you know, passing over, um, saving people from, from, you know, imminent destruction. Uh, this, this communion meal was, was special. <clears throat> and even if it was just at the moment special, because, you know, whether they knew it or not, it was Jesus's last physical meal before his, um, crucifixion, you know, it's, it's still an important meal. Um, and I guess, you know, part of what communion is, is, is a recognition that we are dependent upon God, not just as creatures, but also as sinners. Um, I mean, every meal is a reminder of that, but how much more is communion? Like the fact that we, the, the food that we have, the water that rains from heaven, all that we, all that happens to make food get from where it is produced onto our table is, is only by God's grace. Um, and in communion, we get this picture, not just of his provision, but also his, his reconciliation, his redemption. Um, Tim Chester says that each mouthful is a reminder that, that we cannot save ourselves. I just kind of liked that, you know, that picture. And it's, it's hard to even picture that when you, you know, you alluded to grape juice and a cracker, it's hard to picture just like this tiny little bite. Um, when in reality, each, you know, this, this meal was actually a meal. The Lord's supper was a meal, not just a little wafer. Um, and each bite, each drink was that reminder that, that we cannot save ourselves. We, you know, we rely on daily bread for physical life. So we rely on Jesus for, for spiritual life because he is the bread of life, as he said. So we, we come to communion as, as, as sinners in, in desperate need of, of reassurance. Um, and when we do, when we, when we come to the table, we hear, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I don't know. I, I just, I, as I was sort of, uh, you know, preparing for this, this episode, thinking about those, those Old Testament types, those Old Testament, Old Testament anticipations of, of what was to come. Again, I just, I was really, you know, struck by that thought of what it would have been like to be in the upper room as, as a disciple, um, you know, picture Judas who, who knows what's going to happen, you know, picture the disciples who are just like, you know, maybe kind of sleepy, maybe just, you know, wanting to enjoy a meal. And Jesus is talking about this being his last meal and needing to depart and, um, then to, to institute the, the, the supper and to, to now be, you know, there, there's something cool about being part of that. Like we, even though we weren't there, um, in a sense, we, we commune even more intimately with Christ than they did at that meal. And I think that's something that we, that we often forget in our contemporary evangelical culture, because, um, I think one, our, our theology is bad on the Lord's Supper Two, I think our practice is bad. The fact that we have this little wafer um, and a little tiny, it's not even a sippy cup. It's like a little <laughs> drop, like I don't, a dollop, a dollop of, of grape juice. Um, 
man, what, how different the church would look if we, if we truly took the Lord's Supper as we ought to. And, and maybe this is a good time to transition as you sort of alluded to, like, you know, there, there's some, there's some differing views on, you know, how present Christ is and, and what, what is communicated in the supper. Um, is it merely a memorial? Is the f- bread and wine Jesus's literal body? Um, do you want to kind of transition into that conversation? Yeah. And I think that, you know, in, in, in one way, I feel like what we've been talking about so far is so much more important in terms of, you know, where it comes from, you know, the, the, just the way God interacts with his people for all of history, not just Christian history. Um, but all, and also like what it kind of signifies and communicates and represents and is for us. Um, but a lot of the debates that I kind of referenced earlier have historically centered on disagreements over what we want to say about Christ being present in the Eucharist. You know, that's a phrase that I feel like just gets people riled up, you know. Jesus' presence in communion, Jesus' presence in the Eucharist, you know. Um, so I think that it, it, it is like, it is important to, cause there is a right answer, I would say. Um, and it's also important to work out what, you know, where we kind of map onto these conversations, because these are conversations that have colored entire eras of church history and continue to be really important when, dealing with people from different traditions or dealing with yourself in your own tradition and maybe this being something that you haven't necessarily thought through all the way. Um, so I just think that it's, it's a helpful conversation to, to focus in on. And so I, the way I like to explain it, um, this might not be totally super accurate or whatever, but I, I think it gets the job done. Um, there's a few different terms that kind of more or less describe the the major points on a spectrum of basically how Jesus is present or not present in the Eucharist. So on one end of that spectrum, we have transubstantiation, which is the position of Rome. Um, and it the, the word transubstantiation means to 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 change substances or, or to cross substances you know think of like trans like transport or you know i don't know like a train you know i think it comes from that word i assume if not it sounds like it so it works but <laughs> and then um substantiation you know substance substantia in latin so um what is happening in transubstantiation is that, well, I can't even just start there. You have to take a step back with transubstantiation and understand that the what there's a certain metaphysics that is being played with here. There's a certain way of understanding reality, you know, what's underneath the physical world. That's kind of what metaphysics means. So... In transubstantiation, there's the idea that there 
there is a distinction between something's substance and something's accidents. So the accidents of something are the characteristics it has that aren't inherent to its existence or its character. So I'm looking at a coffee mug on my table right now. It's green, it has a white inside, it's kind of skinny and tall compared to some other mugs. Um, Those are all accidents of this coffee mug. The substance of an object or of a thing is sort of the thing in itself, like the thing as it actually is. So I could say the substance of this coffee mug is that it is a mug, or or maybe I'd want to say it's a you know a a drinking uh, utensil, um, or maybe I'd want to say the substance is whatever is it's made out of. So like I think this is like ceramic or, or something. Um, so if I change, you know, although I guess ceramic would, would could also be an accident in terms of, um, you know. You can have a coffee mug made made out of different, you know, materials. But it, the point is, this is still a mug. No matter what material I make it out of, no matter what color I paint it, no matter what shape it is, um, it's a it's a coffee mug that is 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 what the object is that is presented in this particular form that I'm showing Jensen right now, but nobody else can see. Um, so what does that all have to do with the Lord's Supper, and what does that all mean? So bread and wine have certain you know substances there's the substance of bread like bread itself and the substance of wine wine itself and then there are accidents so you know the bread is circular it's unleavened it's maybe it has salt in it i don't i have no idea um and the accidents of the wine are you know it's it's red um it has a certain scent, has a certain taste or a certain, uh, you know, thickness in your mouth or whatever. Um, So we're finally getting to the trans substance part here. In the mass, what happens is the substance of bread and the substance of wine are changed into the substance of Christ's body and blood. However, the accidents remain the same. So... You, you don't lose the texture and the taste and the scent and the look of the bread, even though it is no longer bread. The substance of bread has been changed into a different substance, the substance of Christ's body. And the same thing with the wine for Christ's blood. So that's one way of explaining Christ's presence. So, so, in a view of transubstantiation, Christ is present in, you know, there, there's a phrase, uh, I, I don't want to mess it up, you know, with respect to my Roman brothers and sisters, but I think it's Christ is, pr- is present body, soul, and divinity. So the totality of Christ is, 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 is literally, which is going to be an important word later, it's literally, and, and it's, it's substantially there. The substance, you know, you you are not holding a wafer of bread. You are not sipping wine. Um, you are you are you are tasting. You are eating and drinking Christ's substance, body and blood. Um, 
under you know the accidents of bread and wine. It's pretty complicated, and I'm not sure I've done a great job explaining it. Um, so forgive me if if that's a bit confusing. But hopefully, comparing it to the other views might also make it a little clearer. And also, Jensen, if you if I miss something, please chime in or you know any clarifying. I mean, points. that's the one I know like the least about. I, I, what you've said, I've heard, and that's about. You know, you probably articulated it better than I even could have. So, all right, well, we'll move on. So the next, the next um, point, you know, position that I'm that I'm, I'm calling it real presence, and we can kind of put that in quotes. Real presence. Um, so, g- generally speaking, I would say this is this is more or less the position taken by the East, so the Orthodox churches, um, Lutherans, Anglicans. Um, would fall somewhere in this sort of category, which which can be can seem a little vague, um, but I, I don't think it needs to be. Um, so the idea is that Christ is really present. This is my body. This is my blood. That's what Christ said. That's what Paul seems to indicate when he talks about, you know, discerning the body, you know, if you take unworthily, you're sinning against the body and blood of Christ. Um, the difference between the difference between Rome and transubstantiation and these groups in real presence is not that there's a problem saying Jesus is really truly present in the Eucharist, which is why you know we'd hear you, you might say real presence. The difference is that generally speaking, these groups are are a lot less interested in trying to sort of philosophically explain what's happening. Um, And they're more satisfied to say, Christ has promised that this is his body and his blood shed for me, and that I receive through bread and wine, sacramentally, mysteriously, I receive his body and blood. So Christ is here. And maybe I don't know the minute minute details of Christ, um, how that works or why that happens or what Christ is doing or why God, you know, does this or that, that's okay. You know, I can rest in, in the knowledge that this is, this is Christ's presence. You know, I mean, I mean, Christ is present. This is his body and blood, which, you know, as you might've guessed, that's kind of where I am. Yeah. I, I put the Anglicans here. Um, and something that I think is important is Christ is literally present in this view. The problem with Rome is not that they say Christ is literally there. I would say there's room to say that Christ is bodily present as well. I don't think the problem with Rome is that they say he's physically there. I think I think there's an element of how they explain it that's problematic. Um, but that's kind of maybe another discussion. So moving along this spectrum um, is the next one would be spiritual presence. Generally speaking, this is this is you know think of ref, you know capital R reformed people. Um, think of John Calvin. I think John Calvin is is really really good um, to read on you know to get an idea of this kind of a um, this kind of a theology of the Lord's Supper. Um, and basically, Christ doesn't make himself literally truly you know objectively present in the elements in the sense that holding that piece of bread that's been consecrated means I'm holding Jesus's body. Well, 
a piece of Jesus's body, you know, broken for me, whatever. Um, but, but that doesn't mean that Calvin or a spiritual presence, uh, model wants to say that God is, that Jesus is any less truly present. And I think that's really important because that's, that would be, you know, misrepresenting them to say that, oh, spiritual presence. Oh, you know, spiritual. So he's like sort of present. No, that's not, (laughs) that's not what's happening here. Um, but the presence that, that Christ has with his people is spiritual in that in faith coming to the Lord's table and coming to the elements of bread and wine, the, the church, the individuals commune with God through faith. Um, so there's actually a really intriguing overlap between John Calvin and, um, and, uh, the Orthodox priest Alexander Schmemann here, because they both talk about the church ascending into heaven by the spirit to be brought up into heaven, to commune with Christ in the heavenly places, Um, which is so interesting to see that overlap. And that just kind of goes to show like Calvin was no memorialist. If, if anybody thinks that they're just super wrong, sorry, (laughs) like, absolutely not the case at all (laughs) um and i I, you know i think there's some there's there's just like with any of these views there's going to be different ways of articulating it um you know so you might have someone say oh that's not what i mean i mean this and and you know that's fair um but i i think that the key point is that faith is needed in order to receive the presence of christ does that make sense like christ isn't present without the faith of the person receiving if that makes sense and and maybe that's not fair but in my reading and in in what i've been exposed to that's that's this sort of the position i've observed um well given maybe given like that this is i mean i could maybe shed a little bit more light just given that i fall kind of like into this camp i was hoping you would (laughs) um so one of the things that One of the things that um, I keep mentioning this book, that's just because it's most relevant and most recent in my mind. Um, but Tim Chester says that the signs so of baptism and, and Lord's Supper, the signs convey the reality that they signify without becoming the reality that they signify. That's a big typical reformed view is that this, these signs, so baptism, the Lord's Supper, they convey a spiritual reality or you know even physical reality in a sense um so they convey that reality that they signify without becoming that so like the communion can convey what is happening in the lord's supper without becoming what it is signifying Mm -hmm. um so the bread does not become christ's physical body because as he says if it did it would stop being a sign or a sacrament it would be the reality itself um so and i want to I want to chime in and say that that is a is a really good way of putting the the issue that I see that that really all Protestants have seen with transubstantiation is that the sign and the thing signified are being collapsed into one. Um, right. And as the Thirty Nine Articles of Religion and the Second London Baptist Conven- Convention <laughs> Confession. Um, <laughs> They wrote it at a convention, probably. Yeah, it's, it's fair. <laughs> um, both of those documents say that transubstantiation, the problem with it is it overthrows the nature of a sacrament. And what does that mean? It's not sacramental if the sign and the thing signified are collapsed into one. 
So I think that's a and really the reality. That's a really important sort of like category to think about sign and signify. It's it's right. really if you're talking about sacraments, like that's what you're that's what you got to be thinking about, and and that's really really important. Exactly. Yeah. And I think one of the other helpful clarifiers, at least from this position, is one of the reasons that the Reformed differs from like more Lutheran or more Anglican, like you're describing with real presence, um, is sort of like the nature of Christ's human body, um, like where it is located. Like if, if Christ, and I'm not very well versed on this, like just so I could be completely wrong, but the way that I've understood it is like Christ's humanity can only be physically present in one location like christ's physical body cannot be you know in america and in russia and in china and in ethiopia um so the way that the reformed tradition as you mentioned sort of talks about um christ being present with us is by the spirit i mean we christ is present through the spirit with with each believer i mean if we believe that the spirit indwells the believer he's in a lot of different places in a lot of different parts in all parts of of the world um so as you alluded to when we partake of the supper something profound does happen so like at communion the spirit connects these heavenly and and earthly realms so to speak so christ is spiritually present in a in a special way but as as tim chester says again spiritual does not mean artificial Um, so to say that christ is spiritually present is not to say that he's not present it just means that his physical body is not present. Um, but in the supper, there is a reassurance still of, of his love, of his protection, of his covenant commitment. Um, the bread and wine are physical signs of his spiritual presence. Um, you know, as we feast on the bread and the wine, we feast on Christ. Um, I really like how Tom, Thomas Cranmer puts it. So um, again, to quote him, he says, For this reason, our Savior Christ has not only set forth these things plainly in his holy word that we may hear them with our ears, but he has also ordained a visible sacrament of spiritual regeneration and water and another visible sacrament of spiritual nourishment in bread and wine with the intent that as much as possible for man, we may see Christ with our eyes, smell him with our nose, taste him with our mouths, touch him with our hands, and so perceive him with all of our senses." Just as the word of God preached puts Christ into our ears and into our hearts, uh, so the same way these elements of, of water, bread, and wine joined to God's word put Christ in a sacramental way into our eyes, mouth, hands, and all of our senses. I love that. Um, <laughs> dude, right? It's so good. Right. Where is that from? Yeah. Dude, I, I, I do not know its direct... I didn't look at the... I, I should have noted the footnote. So, that, so Tim Chester was quoting gotcha. this in his book and i forgot to see what work thomas cranmer produced it in i'll have to look it up but that's so good um yeah super yeah good. yeah no i think that's super helpful and, and one of the reasons that i think it's really important to be fair well first of all honesty is a christian virtue but second of <laughs> all um a, to be fair about spiritual presence and and the the, the broad uh rich reform tradition on the lord's supper to be honest about that, if, if that's not where you come from, if you're from a more like, you know, high, not not higher, but a more um, a more objective sort of real presence type view, it is because there are there is another view, which is that it's just a, a memorial. It's just it's just a symbol and sort of the m- common use of that word. 
Um, so here I would put, you know, some Baptists, depending on how, which is also just, it's such a tricky thing to say because so many people call themselves Baptists. I would say a Baptists, lot of Baptists. You know, um, a lot of Baptists. Most. I, I would probably say most, but but I don't, I can't back that up. So I, I just decided to go with some. But it seemed, you know, in my experience, you know, I, you know, I went to a, I went to a Baptist church that growing up that was by no means theologically illiterate or uninterested um, and like very robust theological sort of, you know, our Sunday school was we went through a systematic theology in middle and high school, which doesn't make us special. It just goes to show like this wasn't just, you know, a church that didn't care about theology. Um, but it was definitely memorialist. So it, it's it's not to hmm. say that this is, you know, yeah. Anyway, most Baptists yeah. typically, um, Reformed Baptists would probably just be the exception just by virtue of the fact that they're, you know. Reformed-ish. They're, they're Reformed cosplaying as Baptists or they're Baptist cosplaying. As, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I, no, that's good. Um, well, yeah. I, I think, and then also like like non denom just boring. Right. Not that was really that I repent. <laughs> Generic oh evangelicalism <laughs> is what I meant to say. I <laughs> no boring. Maybe good that's word. boring. I don't know, but the boring company. That's a uh, you know Elon Musk. That's now <laughs> the the catchphrase for evangelical churches. We're the boring company or something. So yeah, um, and memorialism oh, is man. what it sounds like. We, we right. remember, it helps us to remember, it's a memorial. And that, that's, that's the only significance that are in the bread or the wine, is to whatever degree it causes us to remember, you know, Christ's death. Um, I'm not going to rehash it. Neither of us fall there. Mm-hmm. It, it seems to me to just ignore the plain sense of Scripture, which is also ironic because a lot of people who would they claim sola scriptura you know, a lot of people who would maybe be in that camp would be the kind of person to say if you if it's not the plain sense of scripture then you can't believe it you know um right but but yeah i i kind of cut you off there but i wanted to make sure we i i included everyone yeah, who was I, who was you know no, I, re- I realized that like what i wanted to say wasn't directly relevant so i, I it's okay so i'll i'll say yeah. it now real quick but um, to sort of, I don't know, kind of growing up in not very liturgical, not very um, theologically robust churches, um, I, I sometimes struggled to understand really just like what these things were. Like I think a lot of people, they struggle to understand baptism and the Lord's Supper. So I, the, the way that I've um, sort of condensed it here is that, that, that baptism is the embodiment of our union with Christ and the Lord's Supper is the embodiment of our communion with Christ. Um, so, so baptism points us to our union with him. Um, you know, God has given us not just a word about union with Christ, but a physical sign and seal and, and communion is, you know, conversely an expression of the ongoing two way relationship that we have in Christ because we have you, because we have been united to him by grace. Mm. Um, so this is why baptism precedes the taking of communion, right? right? Like, so our, our union comes first, we, we are joined to him and then we have fellowship with him. We have life with and in him. Um, so, so communion is really the place where we come to experience really, uh, you know, experience it afresh, a new, 
um, the fruit of our union with Christ. Right. So, you know, there's the objective reality that we have been united to Christ. So enjoy and, and, and reap the benefits of, of that union. Come and commune with him. So when we're weary, when we're doubting, fearful, guilt-ridden, frustrated, proud, anxious, we, we come to the bread and wine um, for that reminder that you have been united to him and you are continually united to him. Um, and then I, I sort of thought of like three application points, um, you know, as a good Baptist does um, or something. I don't know. I'm just kidding. Or something. <laughs> um, but sort of like thinking about participation in communion, it changes our lives in at least three ways. There's probably a lot more, but these are just like three simple. These are ways that your life is transformed and changed by participating in the Lord's Supper. So number one, it shapes our service. Um meaning we're, we're reminded that, that Christ came to serve, not, not to be served. Um, so how does that shape our interactions with one another? So what we see in, 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 you know, in all of life, the fact that anything that we have comes from Christ, but especially the supper that has been instituted by him. Um, he came to serve us. He gave his life for us. Um, and he continues to serve us in the supper. Um, so that ought to shape the way that we interact with one another as the body, the way that we are, are generous, the way that we're hospitable, um, you know, we learn how to serve because the king is continually serving us. So that's one way that the, the taking of communion ought to, to shape you. The second is it shapes our gratitude. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Greek scholar Lucas, but Eucharist comes from the Greek word meaning give thanks. That's what I've been told. Is, is that a, <laughs> okay. So, you know, the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, um, that comes from the Greek word again, meaning give thanks. Um, you know, every account of the supper in scripture gives uh, an indication that they broke bread, they gave thanks. Um, so in the supper, we recognize that we ought to be grateful for all that God has done and continues to do. Um, so, you know, as Christians, we live grateful lives, contented in, in a reality that transcends the, the mundane day-to-day life. Um, and so when we come to the table, it, that is the supreme moment to be grateful because one, we're I mean, Christ didn't have to give us the supper. He didn't have to give us baptism, these these reminders of what he's done and continues to do, but he does. And then it trickles down into every other of area of life. Um, and lastly, and maybe most importantly, it shapes or reshapes, I think, um, our view of the world. Uh, because when we all come to the table as brothers and sisters in Christ from every nation, tribe, language, peoples, uh, the supper is a reminder and a challenge to live as a new people in this world. So when, when we come together, this isn't just me having a, a cracker and a cup of grape juice by myself. Um, but I'm, you know, I mean, again, the, I think the modern church does is just not a good, pl- a good context for having the supper because it is just like this addendum. It's almost like tagged on to the end of the service. Like, oh, oh, by the way, we're going to do this real quick and then rush out as opposed to like an actual meal that is shared with people. And like when I think of Paul, when he writes, isn't it to the Corinthians, when he's writing, um, you know, there, there, there are those people who are like withholding it from like the the less wealthy. So like the wealthy people are taking it and, and enjoying it and other people aren't getting it. And, and he, he corrects them. Um, that, was, that was because like they were not recognizing that, you know, this meal, this reality, you being a Christian, it, it transcends these um, socioeconomic and racial and, um, you know, language barriers, and it, it unites you in a way that you were not united before. And so, again, so it, 
the taking of the supper shapes our service, shapes our, our gratitude and our view of the world. Um, and, you know, there's also, there's a lot more that could be said, but those are at least three big ways in which we ought to, to think about the supper, yeah. I guess. That's good stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, we could go on infinitely around you know why we agree here with these people or what we want to say about that but i think we've done a i hope it seems to me a pretty solid job of of doing just this sort of overview of of what's going on what are some of the options that people have presented as as possible views and and why does it matter um and and i'm i'm content to kind of start to wrap up i am not content oh I, I oh, want to say one last thing that just came do. to mind. Do. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I wish I don't. I don't know where this came from, but like literally in the front of the Bible that I usually take to like Sunday service, um, I have this reminder to myself that says, "When you take the Lord's Supper, and there's there's five things. It says, look up, um, because God has pre- prepared the feast. It says, look in, as a um, you know self examination, look back at the cross and what was done." Uh, look around at your fellow church members and look ahead to the marriage feast. Um, like I always thought that was kind of a cool yeah. you know, reminder for some, some of the context. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is the Lord's Supper is an act of obedience because we're, we're doing something that Christ has command us, commanded us to do in remember, remembrance of him. Um, it's an act of thanksgiving, as I sort of said, because, you know, th- to be grateful, to, be, to have gratitude. Um, it is a, a representation of, uh, it is an examination, it is a proclamation, and it is an um, anticipation. So when, we, when we're when we taking this thing, again, even if we only thought about it in those terms, that makes it far more than just a piece of cracker and a cup of juice. Um, so yeah, to not beat a dead horse, there is you know, great significance in these things that ought to shape our lives. Amen. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good way to end. <laughs> I'm glad you added that. So... Um, to to sort of pray us out, um, we we've talked about this, a, you know, we at least off air we've mentioned it quite a few times. I think it's been mentioned a couple times on air too. Um, but instead of reading a a, a prayer proper, we're going to be reading um, and praying Psalm seventy seven. Um. So pray with me. I will cry unto God with my voice. Even unto God will I cry with my voice, and He shall hearken unto me. In the time of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hands were stretched out in the night without rest. My soul refused comfort. When I think upon God, I groan. When I ponder, my spirit grows faint. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old. I call to remembrance the years that are past. In the night, I commune with my own heart. I meditate and search my spirit. Will the Lord cast me off forever? And will he no more show his favor? Is his mercy gone forever? Has his promise come utterly to an end forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? And will he withhold his loving kindness and displeasure? And I said, has his right hand become weak? Has the hand of the Most High lost its strength? I will remember the works of the Lord and call to mind your wonders of old time. I will think also of all your works and my talk shall be of your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders and have declared your power among the peoples. You have mightily delivered your people, even the sons of Jacob and Joseph. 
The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and were afraid. The depths also were troubled. The clouds poured out water, the skies thundered, and your arrows flashed on every side. The voice of your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. The lightning lit up the world. The earth moved and shook. Your way was in the sea and your paths in the great waters, yet your footsteps were not seen. You, this God, <laughs> led your people like sheep by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Amen. Amen. Man, we got to read the Psalms every yeah. day, I guess. Those are <laughs> might be the, that might, so that might be the new. That might be the new plan. <laughs> new transition. I guess we didn't plan for who's outro and stuff. I'll just grab it here. Oh, wait. Um, and we'll just say, oh. What are, oh, what are, oh, you're right. What are you Shoot. reading this week? Yeah. Dude, okay. All right. Um, good call. This is, we need to like put like a little little reminder yeah. in so we don't, we don't forget that. <laughs> um, so, okay. Um, what I'm reading, uh, I really want to finish um, Harry Potter. So uh, for the last year and a couple months now, uh, I've been making my way through all seven books and I'm literally on the last book and I have like two or 300 pages left. And for some reason I just like have been struggling, but like, I really want to finish it. Mm -hmm. So that's what I've been reading. Um, uh, for one of my books, the other book I've been reading again is I've actually been uh, revisiting. He descended to the dead. Um, like I want to, I don't know, read it more slowly this time and sort of evaluate and, absorb what was said in that book because i think it's so important so maybe we'll do an episode dedicated to he descended on the dead someday just to kind of i don't know yeah. i feel like when i talked about that last time i didn't have a very fully formed thought on it so yeah it, it's, nice it, it more like directed you to think about those things because yeah if, did, if yeah. you remember back if you've been around for a while when we talked about the apostles creed we we spent a long time on the phrase he descended to the dead um because you were reading that, you were reading the. I think you were. You had just finished, or you were reading. No, I hadn't. Oh no, I, I like so like that topic. Like we went to, we were talking about the essence of the Christian right. faith. We were using the Apostles' Creed to do that, and in studying, I was just like fascinated by that phrase. He descended into hell. He descended to the dead. That's right. And so like uh, yeah. it was in, it was in doing that that I realized that that book had just come out, and I was like, oh, I gotta yeah. get it and read it. Yeah. I forgot. I, for some reason, I thought you read that before. That you know, but I remember that now. Yeah, yeah, that'd be, yeah, that'd be really cool. If if I ever have time to myself ever again, I'd like to read it <laughs> <laughs> ever again. And then yeah, um, oh man, that's really cool. Well, what are you reading? That's really cool. I yeah, thanks. Am reading on the incarnation by Saint Athanasius this week. Ooh. I um, I read it like end of December, beginning of January. So I, I got a copy of it for Christmas, and then shortly after, I read it. It's not long. My edition's like eighty something pages, including an introduction. So it, it's it's really not mm-hmm. a not a tough read, which is which is awesome because it's so valuable. Yeah. Um, but so this week for our patristics class, we have to read it, um, and I I'm so busy I wasn't gonna read it. Um, but I my plan has been to come back and reread it. Um, I I heard from. Um, of a, I heard on a podcast once that uh, one of the hosts said he reads on the incarnation uh, during Advent as a devotion. Hmm. And ever since I heard that, I was like, "That's a really good idea." And yeah, I and like I don't, it. you know, I don't know if I'll do it like you know 
two sections a day to get through it in a month or if I'll just, you know, when, when Advent rolls around, I'll read it again. But I always thought, you know, my plan was sort of generally to reread it in December. Um, but I just, so I decided, you know, I'm going to read it not super carefully. I might skip some things that I remember and, and, you know, um, as far as for, for school, um, and then come back to it again when I have more time to like really meditate on it. But if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's a great, I think it's a great way to kind of get into Athanasius. Um, it's, I think his most important and popular work and um it's just a really amazing meditation and study on the incarnation and and i'm gonna be honest for a second um you know vulnerable gens here um so you have inspired me a little bit and probably retrieve the idea of retrieval for renewal but like i want to read a lot of older you know patristic and medieval theology right, yeah. i guess and doctrine because like i've been reading confessions which i know is like i don't know that almost seems like a a cop-out because it's so popular um, but like i want to read some like more obscure stuff that that is yeah. old i wouldn't i wouldn't say on the incarnations obscure but i would say do it <laughs> it's it's really good like i said it's not too long or it's not long at all um and and one of the things that really sticks out i read the first like two or three sections like so that's like two pages maybe earlier I was busy but I had a couple minutes to read and so I started it um it's just amazing how and you might really be interested in this actually it's, it's amazing how important creation is to at like Athanasius is like all right in our previous book we talked about like worshiping idols and we kind of solved that so now we're going to talk about the word becoming man and then he goes on to talk about creation for a couple pages and he's like and he even says, he's like, you might be wondering, what does this have to do with the word? Well, let me tell you. And it's just like, you know, I know you, you've been well, big on patristic creation recently with, with Augustine. So I think, I think you might be really interested, but I think, I just think it's, it's such a good book and I need to, I need to reread it sweet. before I can give more like specific thoughts, but I loved it earlier this year. I'm excited to read it again and probably again and again after that. So that's what I'm reading. Speaking of creation, I'll leave us with this cliffhanger. Um, what I learned in that book on uh, retrieving Augustine's doctrine of creation is that he might have believed in an instantaneous creation. Yeah, um, which is fascinating. I, we'll leave it. At, we'll leave a cliffhanger there. Let people think about what that means and think about how that might m- mess with their modern conceptions of six <laughs> days of creation. And oh, I was boy. like, whoa, this is trippy. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, we, we want to say thank you for, for listening to this episode of the Doxology Podcast. Uh, if my memory serves me correct, Lucas, we are about to start Heresy and Heretics. Yeah, Heretics boy. and Heresy, and uh, that'll be our next Tuesday episode. So you, you won't want to miss that. It's going to be a whole month of nothing but heresy. Um, so if you'd like to connect <laughs> Which with is us, different. hit us up on Twitter at Doxology. It's different than most of our months. <laughs> it's most <laughs> You might not think so, I but I, I think so. <laughs> I hope so. Right. Um, you can hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at Doxology Podcast, or you can email us at uh, doxologypodcast at gmail.com. We love feedback, questions, and episode ideas. Uh, you're also welcome to sign up for our newsletter. Check out logos.com slash doxologypodcast. We'd love to hear from you. Peace. Peace.